0: This is rounding the blues. Thanks for joining us. Just a reminder that the information here is for educational purposes only and is not meant to be used as medical advice. All patient information has been modified for privacy. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the content creators and do not represent the opinions of their respective institutions.
1: Hi and welcome to Rounding the Blues, a podcast dedicated to sharing approaches on common medical conditions in Singapore for medical students and junior doctors. I am and
0: I'm Arthur. We're both Duke and US medical students going to year three. Today we're pleased to have with us Dr. Chu C. Yuan, an associate consultant at the Department of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine at SGH to share with us an approach to chronic cough.
2: Thanks Arthur. Thanks Choops. Thank you for inviting me to give this podcast.
1: Thank you, Dr. Chiu. Could you start by telling us a bit about cough?
2: Sure. Cough is one of the most common symptoms encountered in primary care, and uh, chronic cough is one of the frequent reasons that uh, someone's referred to see, especially specialist like myself, especially when it's unresolving. Cough is one of the cardinal refugee symptoms with a wide spectrum of etiologies that range from the infectious to the non-infectious, the benign to the malignant, pulmonary to extrapulmonary, and so on.
1: Mm. We can innate classify cough in many ways. Cough can be dry or productive, and it can also be associated with other symptoms like shortness of breath, wheezing, or chest discomfort. It can be rather confusing, actually. Dr. Chiu, do you have a suggested way of classifying cough?
2: Yeah, let me share a practical and rational way of classifying cough, and that will be according to duration. So although all coughs are acute at the onset, it is the duration of cough with a time of presentation that can help to narrow down the list of possible diagnosis in adults. Acute cough is defined as cough that lasts for less than 3 weeks, while subacute cough lasts for 3 to 8 weeks. Finally, chronic cough is defined as cough that lasts for more than 8 weeks.
1: Hmm, that sounds really simple and easy to recall. Could you explain how this helps us to narrow down the list of differential diagnosis?
2: Now, many GPC patients in primary care have to complain an acute cough, and the majority of these patients will have some form of infection that will be self evolving after 3 weeks of secondary treatment with or without antibiotics. So by classifying cough by duration, it helps GPs decide when to refer the patient for further investigations and assessment. Should the cough persist beyond three weeks, then consideration should be given for infections that have a prolonged natural history, such as pertussis or tuberculosis, which can then be subsequently diagnosed in the outpatient setting with microbiological testing, aided by chest radiography.
1: Mm, I see. Then is it true that respiratory specialists see more chronic coughs than acute ones?
2: Yes, you are correct. By the time patients are referred to see in a specialist clinic, their cough will have typically lasted for more than 8 weeks and will therefore fit into the category of chronic cough. However, patients should be referred to the specialist immediately if they have any red flag symptoms in the presentation, regardless of cough duration.
1: Red flag symptoms. Um, Dr Chiu, could you explain what these red flags are?
2: Yes. When evaluating all patients of cough, we should always routinely ask patients about the presence of red flag symptoms which may then suggest the process of potentially life threatening diagnosis. These symptoms include hemophysis, dyspnea at rest uh, or at night, pauses of voice disturbance, dysphagia, systemic symptoms like fever, weight loss, peripheral edema, with weight gain, and recurrent pneumonia. Additionally, older adults age 55 and above with a significant smoking history should also be considered to be a high-risk group. If patients fulfill any of the rare flag criteria, a chest x-ray should be obtained, and consideration be given for fast-track fetches Hmm.
1: Understood. Dr. Chiu, before we share some chronic cough cases with you, um, could you perhaps give us a general framework of how you would approach chronic cough? For example, in school, we were taught to use the vitamins approach.
2: Sure thing. Vitamins approach is something that all of us learn in med school, but I have something even simpler than that. So my suggested approach follows the recommendations set up by the Clinical Practice Guidelines, uh, published in 2018 by the CHESS guideline expert panel report. It is titled, Classification of Cough The Symptom in Adults and Management Algorithms. I strongly encourage everyone to read this guideline uh, after this uh, as further recommended reading. So as elaborated earlier, the first step in this algorithm is to exclude life-threatening causes of chronic cough. And we do this by asking for red flag symptoms, performing a focused physical examination and getting an x-ray. Pertinent physical exam findings will include a presence of digital clubbing, abnormal breath sounds like repetitions patients with red flag signs and normal physical signs chest radiography would further require urgent investigations like a CT of the chest uh, spital analysis and echocardiography for example now should the patient be negative for red flag symptoms and normal physical signs and chest radiography then the next step will be to clinically evaluate patients for common cause of chronic cough and recommend empiric treatment so these include medications that cause cough, upper airway cough syndrome, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and airway diseases like asthma and COPD. Finally, the last step is to evaluate the response to empiric treatment. By doing so, we can strengthen our confidence in the initial working diagnosis should the patient have a good response. If there's no response to empiric treatment, then we will offer supplementary tests, and this may include lung function tests for asthma and COPD, esophageal manometry and 24-hour pH monitoring for uh, reflux disease, for example.
1: Mm, Okay, so the most important thing is to rule out the red flags first. Thanks, Dr. Chiu. Um, So, should we present the cases to you now and get your opinion on them?
2: Sure. I'll be happy to hear them, and I will demonstrate how we can apply this simple approach to chronic cough set up by the Clinical Practice Guidelines. Let's proceed.
0: Thank you. Case one is Madam A, who is a 40-year-old female who presents to the polyclinic with dry cough for three months' duration. She has no red flag symptoms of hemoptysis, voice disturbance, weight loss, or fever. She's a non-smoker and has a past medical history of hypertension and diabetes mellitus on oral hypoglycemic agents. There were no red flags on systems review, and her lungs were clear on auscultation.
2: Thanks, Arthur, for summarizing the case. Uh, this is a good summary. Uh, from what you tell me, this appears to be a low-risk patient with no reflex in both her medical history and field examination. I'm glad you took a smoking history as well, but could you tell me more about her long-term medicines for hypertension and diabetes medicines?
0: Yes, Dr. Chiu. She's on enalapril 10 mg twice a day and emlodipine 5 mg once daily in the morning for her hypertension. As for her diabetes, she is receiving metformin 850 mg twice daily glipizide, 10 milligrams twice daily, and citagliptin, 50 milligrams once a day. She's been on these medications for at least six months, and she was diagnosed uh, diagnosed with hypertension and diabetes on health screening last year.
2: Thank you. The medication history that you provided is definitely relevant to the case. I note that she's on enalapril, which is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, as well as citagliptin. Now, these two medications are both well-known causes of chronic cough. Now talking about ACE inhibitors, all right, this is typically associated with a dry persistent cough and it's a well-described class effect. Although the mechanism is not exactly known, it is postulated that ACE inhibitor medications promote cough by blocking the degradation of protastic mediators like bradykinin and substance P. Now the incidence of ACE inhibitor cough has been reported to be in the range of what, 5-35% to and its onset may range from hours of the first dose to months after initial therapy. And that is why clinical practice guidelines recommend that we discontinue ACE inhibitors regardless of any temporal relationship between the onset of cough and the initiation of ACE inhibitor therapy. The only effective treatment for this is cessation of the offending ACE inhibitor medication. Resolution of cough typically occurs within one to four weeks after stopping of treatment, but the cough may linger for up to three months.
0: Would replacing the ACE inhibitor with an angiotensin receptor blocker be okay?
2: Yes. Theoretically, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers should not induce cough because the mechanism of action does not involve the inhibition of ACE with the resultant elevation of tissue levels of bradykinin and substance P. Indeed, Losartan, the first ARB that was approved for clinical use, has been associated with a low incidence of cough and similar to that of the diuretic hydrochlorothiazide.
0: I see. Thanks. You also mentioned citagliptin. Could you tell us more on that?
2: Yes. So compared to ACE-inhibitor-related cough, sedagliptin-induced cough has been less well-described. Uh, in a case series of 15 patients, it was reported that patients developed cough, and these symptoms were subsequently consistent with allergic rhinitis. These symptoms happened within one to eight weeks of starting sedagliptin, and they resolved within one week of stopping the treatment. Its mechanism of action is still unclear, but it is postulated that neuropeptides like substance P and bradykinine are also potential enzyme substrates for sedagliptin. Uh, which acts on the DPP-4 uh, enzyme, which stands for dipeptidyl peptidase 4. So for case 1, I would recommend that the patient be advised to stop both methods for now, and I will give her a follow-up appointment in 4 or 6 weeks to review her symptoms.
0: Thank you for your thoughts on the case. Case 2 is a 35-year-old non-smoker who presents to the clinic with symptoms of productive cough for 4 months duration that is associated with frequent rhinorrhea and nasal congestion. He does not have any red flag systems on systematic review and no significant past medical history.
2: So the history you've given me suggests that this patient has the diagnosis of upper airway cough syndrome, also known as post-nasal drip syndrome. Now, what is upper airway cough syndrome? It is defined as chronic cough that occurs with coexisting upper airway symptoms, which may include abnormal sensations arising from the throat, such as the presence of mucus in the throat, or a post-nasal drip sensation. And this is frequently encountered in the clinic setting. And studies have reported that it affects up to 40 to 60% of patients with chronic cough.
0: Is there any test that we can perform to confirm this diagnosis? For example, a nasoendoscopic exam on EDT?
2: Unfortunately, no. There is no objective test for postnasal drip and there's no way to quantify the amount of nasal drip or even directly prove that it's causing cough. The diagnosis is largely dependent on reporting with the patient of the sensation of having something drip down his throat, nasal discharge, or frequent throat clearing. There are no pathognomonic physical findings, and the diagnosis should be determined by considering a combination of criteria, which may include the history, a physical examination, imaging, and ultimately, the response to therapy. So we often give patients a trial of empiric therapy and an antihistamine, a nasal G congestion, and an intranasal steroids. If the patient improves systematically, then we can make a working diagnosis of upper airway cough syndrome. Gastroesophageal reflux disease is another similar cause of chronic cough that can also affect 20 to 40% of patients. And we typically diagnose cough due to esophageal reflux disease based on the constellation of symptoms, physical findings, and response to empiric treatment.
0: Thanks, Dr. Chu. Let's move on to our third case. This is a 65-year-old smoker of 40 pack years who presents with productive cough for six months and is associated with shortness of breath on exertion. He reports having intermittent episodes of chest tightness, but no wheezing. He has no other red flags on systems review or significant past medical history. There are no symptoms of postnasal drip or gastroesophageal reflux disease. He had a chest x-ray performed as he fell into the high-risk group, but it was reported as normal.
2: Yes, so case three highlights the role of lung function testing in the evaluation of chronic cough. That's why I mentioned step three of the algorithm. Now, airway diseases like asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis are conditions where lung function testing can help make an objective diagnosis for chronic cough. Now, if the history of studies of asthma, I would ask for a history of atopy and ask if the cough was associated with any triggers or diagonal variation. In the context of such symptoms, the diagnosis of asthma can be supported with a positive bronchopropagation test or the presence of bronchodilator response on spirometry. This patient, however, has a significant smoking history and it should be evaluated for COPD with a bronchodilator reversibility test on spirometry. And this should typically demonstrate the obstructive pattern with a FEV1-FEC ratio of less than 70%. To summarize, the diagnosis of COPD rests on the trial of smoking history presence of typical symptoms like dyspnea, chronic cough, sputum production, chest tightness, and obstructive pattern of sparmulatory. Should a diagnosis of COPD be made, then we should treat the patient by advising him with smoking cessation, and they should be started on long-acting bronchodilators.
0: Can you also explain more about non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis?
2: Certainly. So as the name suggests, non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis it's an isolated chronic cough in patients with no symptoms or objective evidence of variable airflow obstruction. And they should have normal airway hyperresponsiveness on bronchoprovocation testing. And there should be no evidence of eosinophilic, sorry, there should be evidence of eosinophilic airway inflammation, right? So how do we look for evidence of eosinophilic airway inflammation? This can come in the form of eosinophilia on the full blood count, induced sputum, or lavage. Another way of looking for eosinophilic air inflammation is to look at whether they have elevated total or specific IgE levels, or the presence of positive skin quick test results for atopy. Now it is to be emphasized that the diagnosis of non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis should only be made after we've excluded other causes of cough. And this can be by clinical, with logic, or physiologic assessment, such as spirometry and provocation testing. Now, anti-inflammatory treatment with inhaled corticosteroids or warden secretaries should, uh, when the inflammation is due to occupational exposure on heal allergen, are the mainstay therapies for the treatment of non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis. Patients who improve symptomatically and have a significant fall in the spital eosinophil count uh, uh, demonstrate uh, response to treatment. Now, there's currently no data to guide the choice of inhaled steroids. Uh, and uh, we don't really know how long they should be treated uh, with inhaled steroids. Usually what we'll do is we'll actually follow up the patient in clinic after about two or three months and review the symptoms. And if the symptoms improve, then we'll start to taper the inhaled steroids.
0: Thank you for clarifying. Case 4 is a 70-year-old man who presents with chronic productive sputum for four months that is associated with unintended weight loss of 5 kilograms. He is a non-smoker and has a past medical history relevant for diabetes mellitus on regular insulin injection therapy. He denies having hemoptysis or any vocal changes. His physical exam is unremarkable, but his chest radiograph demonstrated right upper lobe consolidation with cavitation.
2: Uh, thanks, Arthur. This patient has reflex symptoms on weight loss, and this highlights the usefulness of a chest radiograph as the investigation of choice when the reflex symptoms are present. So, TB is uh, or tuberculosis is more common in the elderly in Singapore, and diabetes is an important risk factor. His symptoms are consistent with active pulmonary tuberculosis, and his chest radiograph shows a cavitary lesion in the appropriate location, which is consistent with reactivation TB. Now, he should be advised to isolate himself at home, and we should refer him urgently for sputum testing for TB and be even considered for empiric treatment. Now, the chest photograph is very helpful in diagnosing conditions such as pulmonary edema from congestive heart failure, uh, infections like pneumonia, and the presence of uh, bronchiectasis, interstitial lung disease, and lung cancer. And this should be the test that we should perform when a red flag symptom is present.
0: Thanks, Dr. Chiu. Our final case for discussion today is a 55-year-old smoker who presents with a chronic cough for three months' duration. His sputum was white in color initially, but he notices streaks of fresh blood in the last one month. He also noticed some hoarseness of voice. He doesn't have any weight loss or fever. On examination, he has finger clubbing and reduced breath sounds on the right lung field. Chest radiograph shows a lung mass in the right mid zone.
2: Yes, this patient should be referred to a specialist as soon as possible. So all of the cases we see in clinic, lung cancer is the top differential diagnosis in this case. And the next investigator choice would be a computer tomography scan of the chest. Now, if there's any radiographic features of malignant disease on CT, such as large size of a lung mass, speculated morphology, satellitism, then we may want to counsel the patient on a lung biopsy. Now, the presence of voice disturbance in this patient is a sinister finding, and it even suggests possible vocal cord palsy from malignant involvement of the recurrent laryngeal nerve.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Chu, for sharing your thoughts about this case. We have really learned a lot from the case discussions today. Could you share what are some of the top causes of chronic cough that are seen in clinic?
2: Yes, although we have spent quite a lot of time covering uh, conditions like pulmonary tuberculosis and lung cancer, the truth is the most frequently encountered causes of chronic cough are due to upper airway cough syndrome, asthma, non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis, and gastroesophageal reflux disease. And what makes a diagnosis difficult? Right? These conditions can often coexist, and hence making a definite diagnosis in chronic cough is often challenging because the etiology may be multifactorial. In fact, it's been estimated that approximately 20% of patients have cough that is due to more than one cause. Hence, making careful, persistent follow-up to cough resolution and further evaluation is important. Very often, we rely on response to empiric treatment as a means to making a diagnosis in the clinic setting.
0: Thank you for the thorough discussion on chronic cough today.
2: It's been a pleasure to create this podcast with you today.